Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, in our final episode of 2022, we hear from Netflix EMEA chief Larry Tans about his strategy for the region and what's to come from the world's leading streamer as it introduces ads and live programming. Amazon Studios head of Avod Original Content and Programming Lauren Anderson on rescuing Australian soap opera neighbours for the company's streamer Freevee. And BBC director of Unscripted Kate Phillips on The Traitors, Gladiators and Survivor, plus her editorial strategy and programming priorities for 2023. Larry Tans joined Netflix in 2014 and today is Vice President of Content for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Based in Amsterdam, he leads across scripted and unscripted series, films, co-productions and acquisitions. With the streamer having endured a challenging year in the wake of the Covid viewing boom, introducing an ad-supported tier and testing live programming as competition increases, he sat down with Channel 21 international editor Nico Franks to spell out his strategy. Tans told Content London delegates recently the firm would not be changing its approach to commissioning as a result of these shifts, but was beginning to explore the new opportunities live will bring. He also confirmed Netflix has become more flexible in terms of the deals it offers producers, is committing more resource to non-scripted and keeping an open mind when it comes to fast channels. We've got a lot to cover. And Larry, I think we're speaking on the eighth anniversary of you joining Netflix. So it's like to the day. Wow, you have good intel. Yeah, I joined Netflix eight years ago today. It's been an incredible journey and an incredible ride. Yeah, so that's, you know, pre-originals almost. So Yeah. Yeah, we were just starting to do originals. Uh, and, uh, and now we're doing original series. Now you're doing a lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, eight years at Netflix, but also there was a recent kind of change to your role earlier this year. So tell me a bit about that to kind of set the scene. Sure. So I'm now head of content. I oversee all content for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which is film, series, uh, scripted and and unscripted, uh, and also licensing. So we combined film and series together into one content team. So within each of our countries, we have content leads who oversee all all types of content. Whenever I, I speak to a Netflix exec, the phrase that pops up, or some form of the phrase, is always kind of local for local, mm. and that idea that when Netflix aren't actually looking for breakout shows that necessarily are going to travel the world, it's shows that work in the territory they're commissioned in. But to what extent is there a kind of pressure now? You know, it has that in terms of Netflix's year, it's been a, a challenging one broadly. How much pressure is there for those global hits like Squid Game uh, when you are commissioning these local shows? Uh, we believe that we just need to get better and better at content, better films, better series. Um, and for us, there are a couple of things that we've learned. Um, you know, bringing together film and series is, is an indicator of uh, variety is important to our members. Uh, and so whether it's film or series or nonfiction, uh, we know that our members love to watch all types of content. Um, And so um, the local piece, uh, what we've seen is that working with local creators has enabled us to find really great local stories. So working with French creators in France and German creators in Germany. And what that does also is it brings us this level of authenticity. And that's really the key, is authenticity. So stories that are locally relevant, told told by local voices, 
capturing the zeitgeist, capturing cultural moments. Um, and that also lets us um, uh, bring stories that will be great locally, and those are the ones that tend to travel globally. And part of what we also have is teams in the various countries who are close to the creative communities, so they can really connect with producers and find those stories. And we're about, yeah, about a year on from the kind of Squid Game phenomenon. Uh -huh. um, this time last year, it was all anyone was talking about. What overall has kind of Netflix learned from that example? Because it, it seemed like it took everyone by surprise. So are there ways to kind of engineer a, a global hit? No. <laughs> I think what we know is great stories can come from anywhere and be loved everywhere. And what we see is if something really resonates locally, it works great globally. Um, and Squid Game, as an example, uh, the team in Korea was trying to make a great Korean show, and they did, and the Korean audience loved it, and it traveled from there. And a lot gets said about the autonomy that Netflix gives its execs in local markets. Mm -hmm. So to what extent are you kind of across those decisions? And, and in terms of the programming and the kind of minutiae of the programming, what is your involvement? We were just talking backstage uh, what my schedule looks like. And I have this uh, really fun week to week of spending time with our teams in our various countries, uh, looking at the, the slates and looking, talking about the ideas, um, and really relying on great teams in all of the countries to be close to the creative communities, not only to understand the stories that are being told, but to really um, understand the talent and the stories that they're trying to tell to make them as great as possible. So I spend time with the teams. You know, our, our HQ for the region is in Amsterdam. Uh, and at the same time, I was in Berlin last week. I'll be in Warsaw and Stockholm next week. Uh, I was in Madrid uh, a few months ago. Um, I'm here this week. And so it's, it's really fun. And I get to see the different types of stories being told. And we just have incredible teams. That's been a big development uh, from when I started, and even just from a few years ago. When I look at the strength of the teams that we have across our countries, it's the top execs in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Sweden, who are working with the top creators in those countries. And just a few years back, I mean, when, uh, when I joined Netflix, uh, our, our entire operation in the region was a townhouse in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And now we have teams in a bunch of different countries. Uh, and the content that's coming is really like nothing you've, you've ever seen before. So you mentioned, yeah, some of those country offices there in Rome, Berlin, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Madrid, Paris. How do they work with one another? And what opportunities are there for the independent production communities in those markets to work with Netflix? Uh, well, within each country, they're really close to the creative communities and, and, and the production companies. Everything we do in the region is with partners. So we don't self-produce in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And so independent producers can work with us to, to make great films and great series. Uh, we have this really fun dynamic where we all get together. We were all together in Amsterdam uh, uh, two weeks ago, talking about ideas, sharing learnings, even sometimes ideas for uh, a show. We were talking backstage a little bit. Um, we had a show called Home for Christmas in Norway. And um, Tini Andreata, who's our lead uh, for content in Italy, said, I really love that show. I think there's a version of that that could really work in Italy because of some of the themes. And it was a five-minute conversation with a team in the Nordics. And it's coming out in, in Italy uh, next month, or this month, actually. 
And then how does that work in terms of the, the kind of uh, back end that the, so in that case, the Norwegian producer kind of gets from that? Does that, in terms of the Italian remake? Yeah, so we have such a range of deals. We license content, we commission content, and a lot of it depends on how it all comes together. So sometimes if it's a book that we option and we hire the writer, that might be different from a format that's already established. And so in that case, we figure out how to work the producer in to this new version, and we figure out a way to, to, to make it work for the producer. Okay. And, well, yeah, we talked about Italy there, so tell me a bit about The Lying Life of Adults. Elena Ferrante novel, Lying Life of Adults, um, it sort of puts you into Naples in the 90s, uh, a young uh, character um, who's on the precipice of adulthood and uh, doesn't really get along very well with her parents, something, um, you know, we can all relate to. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a great example of the quality level that we're producing and the local authenticity. And I actually think many, many people outside of Italy will watch it, but I know that our Italian members will love it. It's coming out January 4th. The director, Eduardo DeAngelis, it's just a perfect example of this great local uh, point of view. He's from Naples, and I don't think anybody could capture 90s Naples the way he could, and so it's this great authenticity that you're, you know, really, that local creator can bring to the table. It's a good mm -hmm. example of that. And there's a question come in, which kind of oh, good. Uh, applies. So, can local European shows really work for U.S. audiences? Are there examples of uh, Netflix shows that have been created in Europe but have worked in the U.S.? And I suppose, well, you can answer this, but Lupin, Money Heist, that's two that, off the top of my head. Yeah, those are two great examples. And again, Lupin is built for our French members. And it's super French, very authentic, a giant French movie star. Uh, and then uh, it's so good and it's so beloved in France that the sort of word travels. And with, with Netflix, uh, very quickly, um, People can get excited about things all over the world. So you can see this, and it's great for creators because you, you put your show on Netflix and suddenly there's a whole global audience who can access it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, we're really doing something that's never been done before, which is it used to be that um, to have a show watched by a global audience, it had to be definitely in English, and, it, and most of the time it had to come from Hollywood for film or series. And we're at a, in a in an inflection point where you can make a show in French, in Spanish, uh, and, some, and now there's a taste for content from different places all over the world. So in the US, people didn't watch shows from France or Spain. Definitely not in big numbers. Definitely not shows from Korea. Uh, and the other thing that, that's happened that we've been a big part of is creating access. So suddenly, you can see that show from France or Spain immediately, not just because it's on Netflix and you can stream it, but also because it's dubbed into your language or subtitled, more than 30 languages dubbed and subtitled. So uh, people who never in their lives ever would have thought about watching a French show, because they'd probably have to find it on a DVD somewhere, can click play and watch Lupin. And they can watch it in French with subtitles, or they can watch it dubbed in English. So I think English dubbing has really opened up the market in the US a lot for shows that are not in English. And Casa de Papel and Lupin are great examples of that. And there's, there's a lot more. Those are probably two of, the, two of the big ones. 
And you mentioned, so you're doing something that's never been done before. And I suppose the concern from the independent production community there might be, well, are we missing out on, you know, when they're doing a deal with Netflix, are they missing out on potential backend, you know? Because I think Lupin, that's going to be kind of like franchised, spin-offs, things like that. Um, so to what extent are you now more flexible than you previously were in terms of doing those deals, things like co-productions, sharing rights mm -hmm. with the indies? A lot more. You know, in the beginning, we were taking a huge risk. And I remember when we started production, local production, there were a lot of doubters, like, could this really work? Is this a business? How can you spend a certain amount of money on something where you don't have a lot of members? Will the content work in streaming? Uh, and so there was a lot of risk. And there weren't a lot of uh, um, partners who wanted to come in on that. Now, I think we've proven it out. And so there are a lot more opportunities for co-productions uh, or for more creative deal-making with our partners. Look, one thing we know is creators and storytellers want their story told to as many people as possible. So I think right there, there's a win where we're bringing a story to a global audience. And then for producers, we were very creative about figuring out what's important to them. I mean, one thing I've learned, even within a country, I'll meet with producers and I'll ask, you know, what's important to you? Um, and, and I'll usually get different answers, sometimes from the same producer. They'll say, well, it depends. Sometimes uh, profit and knowing how much you're going to make and not taking risk is important. Sometimes they'll say, well, we want to co-invest and we want to be part of it. And so we really look at each show and each producer and we ask them, what's important to you on this and how can we meet in an agreement that gets us both what we want? And so uh, EMEA is in your job title. So what's the strategy in the Middle East and Africa? It's exciting. I mean, in the Middle East, um, we, well, we just launched Dubai Bling, which was really popular among our Arabic audience uh, and also around the world. Um, and we have um, our first show coming out of Kuwait called The Exchange. It's really fun. It's set in 80s Kuwait during the oil boom. And we're, we're seeing a, a young woman uh, who's trying to get a job on the Kuwaiti exchange. And she is the only woman there, actually. Her cousin is also there. I'm not very happy that she is also kind of entering her space. Uh, and so that's out of Kuwait. We have um, uh, Finding Ola season two, which is a big hit dramedy out of Egypt uh, coming next year. And then we also have another season of Al Rawabi's School for Girls which for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a really awesome show out of Jordan. Um, and so we're programming to our Arabic audience from multiple countries. And what we're seeing is um, they're great in their home country and they're traveling because the shows are really strong. And then, and then Africa, um, uh, we're, I was just in South Africa a couple of weeks ago and it's just talking to creators and their experience after launching their show uh, on Netflix uh, is so encouraging and so uh, inspiring. Um, we, um, we, we had Young Famous and African. Um, we just launched uh, the new season of um, Blood and Water. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was thinking Blood Sisters, but that's Nigerian, which is also exciting. We have Far From Home, which is a YA Nigerian show, which is launching this year. Um, but Blood and Water is a huge show out of South Africa. And I was with the cast and just hearing about their experience of being seen globally on our service, which is super exciting.
next year, so Netflix out of the US is going to launch the first, its first kind of live special um, yeah. with Chris Rock. What are the opportunities there in EMEA for live programming? I'm super excited about Chris Rock. It's our first attempt at live, um, and who better to do it with than Chris Rock? And it's also coming off the back of um, Netflix is a Joke, which is this awesome live comedy festival that we ran in LA. Um, Fluffy Glacius sold out Dodger Stadium. It's incredible. Um, so Chris Rock will be live. We'll learn a lot from it. I think um, we'll then have a live capability up and running. And then I think we can apply live to a lot of different things. Are so. you in conversations at the moment with creators here in Europe or elsewhere? Um, well, there are a lot of creative ideas that incorporate live. So for example, you could do a reunion show at the end of a Too Hot to Handle season, or you could do a certain live event. And so there are a lot of great creative ideas. Yeah, live voting in reality, you know, that's a yeah, part of there you a show go. like Big yeah. Brother. Yeah, so I think once we have it up and running and we see how our audience reacts to Chris Rock, which I think will be really favorably, then we can get into what comes next. And another development is uh, kind of uh, basic uh, with ads, that Netflix uh, price, pricing yeah. tier. Yeah. How is, is that going to impact the kind of programming you're doing or the kind of format? Because such a big part of the streaming revolution was the kind of joy of just putting on a show and not having to watch with ads. You know, and traditionally, you know, a cliffhanger before an ad break is quite a good thing. So right. to what extent should showrunners and creators and writers be aware that Netflix might actually be looking for kind of structural changes in their programming? Not at all. No changes. We're not changing the creative at all. So basic with ads, um, it's really about more choice. So for some consumers who may want to pay a little bit less to get the same Netflix uh, with some ads, we think it'll be a good option and a good choice for them. Um, overwhelmingly, the majority of our members are watching Netflix the way they always have. And you already pointed it out. There's a natural cadence in, in shows and even in films where there are ends of scenes and places where an ad can, can easily appear. So we're being really clear to our creative partners, uh, tell the stories the way you would with Netflix normally and no changes. Okay, and we're seeing in the, the, the local kind of streaming market, um, a lot of players kind of getting in on sports. Uh -huh. um, so companies like Viaplay acquiring a lot of um, sports rights what extent are those on the agenda in EMEA and, and uh, which kind of sports do you think would be most popular? Well, right now we're really just focused on, I'd say, sports programming where we're, bring, we're breaking the fourth wall and bringing uh, audiences behind the scenes. So Formula One Drive to Survive is a great example of that. I was in the south of France um, this summer uh, in a vehicle in the middle of the Tour de France where we're filming a similar series uh, out, of our, out of our French um, team. And I think it's going to be incredible. You have, um, it's a very intimate experience with the tour. It's very, very French, but it's very globally interesting. Uh, and so um, I think programming like that is really our way to engage our members with sports. And that's, that's where we're going. And so there's loads of questions coming in. So to what extent does Netflix assess pitched content against audience taste cluster data? And does Netflix use audience data or testing to help improve creative? Um, OK, so audience cluster, there isn't 
a set of data that helps us or indicates what shows we should make or how we should make them. Uh, so really it's about a great original creative point of view from uh, a producer or creator that we think can, can execute that and can tell that story. Um, we do some testing in the, in the course of making something. So sometimes we'll um, look at an episode and we'll put it in front of some people to get some feedback, always in concert with our creators. So we try to provide the tools to support the creative process. So if, creator, if a creator wants to, we just uh, had a show where the creator had two openings to the show and wanted to test both of them. So we did, we ran a test and we got some insights and that helped them decide how to open the show. Interesting. And I think sometimes there's a kind of, you hear a lot about people wanting to kind of back new talent and it's all about new voices and new yeah. talent, which is obviously true. But I think in reality, and the streamers say that a lot, but in reality it it's, tends to be the public broadcasters in local markets who do give, especially kind of comedy creators, their kind of first shot at a pilot, something like that. Um, so to what extent do you feel like that is true and would you take a punt on... on on someone there, you know, they've maybe built up a following online, but maybe they haven't had their first kind of proper TV show writing credit or a production company. We do and we have. I mean, one of my favorite shows out of Italy, Baby, is written by Grams, which is a group of writers who had never done anything like that before. Um, so we, we do and we will continue to, to do so. Um, sometimes it's also taking new voices and pairing them up with experienced storytellers. And ultimately, we need to develop the creative community so that there are more people who can tell stories at the level that we're looking for. And that enables us to be um, you know, great storytellers for our members in, in the long term. Yeah. And yeah, there's an interesting kind of initiative in Egypt, I think, uh, with I think Mariam no Noam. Apologies if I got her name wrong. But all about getting more women writers from that area on, uh, into TV. Yeah, you know, our members over 220 million accounts out there. So our members really are the countries in which we're operating. Mm -hmm. And people love to see themselves reflected on screen. And if we wanna bring stories that appeal to our members, uh, we need to show them on screen and bring stories that are relevant to them. And part of how you do that is who you put in front of the camera. But a big part of it is who is behind the camera. So for us, it all comes back to servicing our, our members uh, and the right array of talent on all sides, on both sides of the camera is the formula to, to you know, delivering authentic and compelling stories to that diverse set of members. And I'm super excited about that. I mean, we're doing a lot of training all around the region um, because one of the challenges is how do we continue to grow the, not just above the line, directors, writers, but also below the line. So uh, production accountants or um, uh, safety coordinators. I mean, there's so many roles that we look at and we say, okay, well, we need more of these in Italy or in France or in Germany. So we're investing a lot. We have a program within our content team called Grow Creative. And that has been growing over the last few years to train thousands of people in these skills. And are there any kind of specific types of programming that you're looking for at the moment? Well, we're looking for a variety to service our members. So I'll start with uh, film, 
series, nonfiction. You had a, a great panel on Monday with some of my colleagues. Um, I think we've proven out for ourselves that our members will stream nonfiction. Uh, and so we're definitely growing that um, a lot more as well. Okay. And it felt like a few years ago there was a big um, rush around tying talent to overall deals and exclusive mm -hmm. deals. But I wonder if, you know, actually that kind of tension between finding different buyers for a show, if the, if the creators actually prefer that. And do you think that actually potentially helps the creative? So actually an overall deal isn't that helpful because it kind of takes that away. Yeah, I, th I think it depends on, right, what the creator wants and what we want. If, if we feel like the best arrangement is us working together on a specific set of things, you know, then maybe an overall deal makes sense. Um, and otherwise, I think oh, we have very, very few of them in the region. We're mostly working with talent in the open market. Okay. And what's the next big swing for Netflix, uh, kind of content genre-wise? Um, so maybe this ties into what you were saying about Unscripted. Um, but also, I suppose, 1899 felt like a pretty big swing. That's really exciting. I mean, some of, some of you have seen it, and people come up to me even at C21 and say, oh my gosh, 1899 is amazing. It's a big swing. It's very ambitious. Uh, I think it's a great example of giving creators the support that they need to tell the best version of their story. Um, and, it's a, and it's a story that takes place across a bunch of locations that we were able to make during COVID using virtual production at the historic Babelsberg Studios in Berlin. So um, it's, uh, it's super ambitious, it's beautiful, it's incredibly well, well told. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're seeing in there is this perfect mix of like creative and innovative technology and way of storytelling with just brilliant uh, creative voices from Bo and Yanti. Um, putting it all on the screen, mm -hmm. so and excited about that. It's got like something like eleven different languages being. So it's all about the um, kind of European migrants on a, yeah. a big ship going to America in 1899 yeah. um, with some kind of mystery uh -huh. elements. But to what extent would you say that's a kind of local for local show, given it has so many different kind of nationalities in? Uh, and how are your viewers watching it kind of around the world? You know, are they watching it dubbed rather than subtitled? It's a great question. Well, the creators are from Germany, and our German members are loving it and watching it in, in huge numbers. Uh, and it's also getting watched by members all over the world. Um, you know, the languages really was about the story they wanted to tell. So it wasn't um, trying to do different languages for any reason other than they wanted a story of a collection of different people on the ship, and it's very uh, germane to the actual plot line and how the story unfolds. And to your point, uh, many people watch it dubbed. So um, when my mother-in-law um, told me, I watched um, uh, Lupin, and I said, oh, that's our show from France. She said, but it's in English. And I said, ah, we've made it with the dubs. She thinks the show is in English. Um, and 1899 is similar. So in Brazil, probably people are watching it dubbed into Portuguese. And some people are watching it in the original set of languages subtitled. Mm -hmm. uh, but more and more, um, we, and we've also improved a lot in terms of the quality uh, of our dubbing. So more and more people are watching things uh, dubbed, usually if they're from a dub country. So there are countries where all content on TV is dubbed, and that's how they watch our, our shows. But we're dubbing uh, 
over 30 languages uh, dubbing and, and subtitling. Mm -hmm. So you talk about access, people can really watch it in almost any language. And is there a difference between the content you're commissioning and the content you're acquiring? So what are you looking for in, in terms of acquisitions? Ultimately, we're always thinking about, will our members love this? Um, I'd say um, for acquisition, what's great is content is being made. Um, maybe it's being broadcast, or maybe it's in theaters, and we can acquire it post-theatrical or in, in another window. And so what we tend to commission usually are the things that we wouldn't be able to license. Mm -hmm. OK. And finally, um, a kind of good kind of macro question here. Uh, is uh, SVOD a sustainable uh, business for the future, or is AVOD, so advertising-supported um, VOD, going to take over? It's, uh, stream, subscription streaming is definitely a sustainable and very profitable business for the future. Um, we're, we're a pure play uh, streaming company, direct to consumer. Streaming is growing. Audiences are moving from watching things on linear to streaming uh, on demand. Um, and it's so funny, my, uh, one of my kids asked for an iPhone, and I realized that I could get a smart TV, a 4K smart TV, for less money than an iPhone. And I, and I did that. I got a new smart TV. <laughs> so there's your giant, it's bigger than the iPhone. Um, but it was a good lesson. It was a reminder for me that smart TVs are actually quite cheap. And smart TVs are proliferating. And people get a smart TV. They connect it to the internet. It's so easy. It's like connected over my Wi-Fi. There was a Netflix button on the remote. And within five minutes, I was watching um, uh, on my new smart TV. And so it's just a good indicator that smart TV growth, the growth of streaming, is a, um, a, a growing business for us. And we're profitable. And we've shown that we can continue to, uh, to, to grow that business. But what about kind of fast channels, so free ad-supported yeah. um, TV? Is that part of the strategy? You know, can you, maybe not next year or the year after that, but can you see a, a future where there's fast channels for the crown or fast channels for other kind of Netflix kind of franchises. Let's see how basic with ads goes. We'll learn, we're a learning company. We'll learn a lot about how our members interact with an ad-supported offering. We'll learn more about that business. We'll see how fast TV develops. Um, and we'll go from there. Cool. OK, we are out of time. Uh, but thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for all for the good us. questions. Thank you, Larry. Yeah. Long-running Australian soap opera Neighbours was cancelled earlier this year after domestic broadcaster Network 10 was unable to find a replacement UK co-financier when Paramount's Channel 5 ended its involvement in the show. But then, to the surprise of the industry, Amazon's free streaming service Freevee struck a deal with producer and distributor Fremantle to bring new episodes to audiences in 2023, with Network 10 retaining first window rights. Lauren Anderson, head of Avod Original Content and Programming at Amazon Studios, led the deal and spoke to C21 North American editor Jordan Pinto at Content London last month about it and other homegrown shows. Her wide-ranging remit, search for youth-skewing drama, family and faith-based programming, plus the growth of fast channels and shift among SVODs to ad-supported models. Give a warm welcome to Lauren, please. Um, so, Lauren, 
oversees, well, actually, Lauren, you oversee a lot, a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I'll just rattle them off quickly. So you oversee all ad-supported programming um, for Amazon. Uh, <laughs> no, let me read this out here. So all ad-supported programming, including creative development, strategy, production, licensing, scheduling, research, and operations for Amazon Freebie, which is available in the US, the UK, and Germany. Uh, you also oversee the fast linear channels for uh, on, on Prime Video and Amazon Freebie. And then recently, your remit also expanded to include programming strategy, development, and execution for all unscripted um, programming for all of Amazon Studios. It's a very large remit. Yes, and by the way, I have three bosses, so <laughs> imagine what their remit looks like. <laughs> okay. Um, it's an interesting time, I think, for, we'll talk about AVOD um, a lot today, and it's a really interesting time for AVOD commissioners. Um, I've been to a, a lot of markets over the past 12 months, and um, AVOD commissioners now are probably the most chased after um, people in, uh, at the markets. You know, before, I think it was the SVOD commissioners that mm -hmm. are being followed down hallways and into <laughs> bathrooms and all that kind of stuff, but now <laughs> that level of devotion is kind of uh, also extended to the AVOD commissioners as well. Um, because for the very good reason that you are, you are buying. Um, we'll start by talking about freebie originals. Sure. Um, how do you, and this is a, a difficult question to answer right off the bat, but how do you do, define a freebie original um, in terms of what you're looking for? Okay, I will answer that question, but I will say it's, it was interesting, and I also, I just sort of want to say it, number one, thanks everyone for coming. It's exciting to be able to have this conversation about AVOD and about freebie. Um, and, and even in coming to Content London, it was, I felt the energy around AVOD and, 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 and those who either want to understand what we're doing or what we're looking for, but also with content that's really focused on the AVOD customer. And so to the point about what our strategy is or what we're looking for on Freebie, inside of the US service, and we are really focused on making sure the US service, the UK service, the German service, because we're in three territories right now, uniquely speak to customers in that territory. It's a big focus of ours. So when you think about neighbors, which hopefully everyone here heard that we are continuing, that was very much about understanding that that show is such an institution inside of the UK that wasn't, uh, that wasn't necessarily a play for every other territory. It was about obsessing over the UK audience and the Australian audience, of course. So for us, the strategy is a few things, making sure that we're really focused territory by territory. We talked a lot at the beginning about being a modern broadcast network. And so what that meant to us was big tent programming, programming that was speaking to all customers. One of the uh, hallmarks of Amazon is our leadership principles. And part of that is being customer obsessed. And so I've said often you can't be customer obsessed if you're not obsessing over all customers. And so inside of Freevee in particular, we are focused on every single customer, making sure that anyone who shows up to the service has something that they love, something that they want to watch. We also took an approach very early on about being day part agnostic. And so one of the things that we saw in streaming is that the majority of programs that were made for streaming were what you would consider traditional primetime content. And so whether that was a drama or a comedy, traditional primetime, overwhelmingly scripted. And so from the very beginning, we wanted to be day part agnostic. So whether that's Judy Justice, that was a daytime court program, Neighbors, a soap opera, we want to be day part agnostic. And we also want to make sure that when you're coming to the service, you have a lot of other, um, a lot of other titles or series or movies to watch. So if you're coming for Neighbors, you don't just find Neighbors, but you find a lot of other 
ancillary content to support that experience. So all of those things were part of our strategy from the beginning. And then unscripted was a big part of our strategy from the beginning. We wanted to make sure that we were giving customers really great unscripted content. We know that people love it. There are people who talk a lot. You and I were talking about this backstage when you have a conversation of what do you like and people have their guilty pleasures and it's some what they think is not high-quality unscripted programming. And I say to people all the time, I'm not guilty about anything I watch. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. if it's an unscripted title and you love it, great. People have varied tastes. Everything isn't going to be, you know, a documentary about it. That's just not what it needs to be all the time. So it's about balance. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the shows themselves? Because I think it's useful to know the kind of breadth of some of the programming that's been commissioned already um, under Freebie. Um, maybe we start with, let's go scripted to, to start with. So we, on the scripted side, what we thought about from the very beginning, and we used our licensed content to really inform a lot of our strategy, is what's working? What are people watching? So Leverage Redemption was the very first show we commissioned for the service as an original. And that was really based on the fact that we licensed the show into the service and people were watching it in droves. The fan base for Leverage is so rabid. They, they show up all the time. They are so active on social. And so it was exciting for us to be able to bring that show back to everyone. And, 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 and it's actually created a bit of a template for us, meaning that whether it's Leverage Redemption that we uh, brought back, Bosch Legacy, which we extended from Prime Video to, um, uh, to Freebie, Judy Justice, I would say, which is not, it's a, it's a different show, but of course she is someone who made her name over 25 years in her former series, or Neighbors. We certainly are really focused, and this is my point earlier about being customer obsessed, really focused on where is a fan, where is the fan base? What are people loving? And then how can we extend that in a great way? And then we do it across a number of genres. We were really focused at the very beginning in four areas on the scripted and unscripted side. So crime and investigative was an area, um, young, adult, yeah, young adult coming of age, pop culture, music, and home and family were really our four content pillars. And we did that across scripted and unscripted, hours and half hours, comedy and drama. And that's been our strategy uh, throughout. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, there's, there's such a breadth of content yeah, that you're absolutely. commissioning at the moment. Um, we were talking a bit backstage about um, the development process, yeah. um, and you actually, it's interesting, you come from a broadcasting back- I do. background, I do. Um, which is, I suppose, that experience is being transplanted into a very um, digital um, uh, arena now, but what does the development process look like at, um, or for you? I was going to say at Amazon Freebie, but let's maybe start with Freebie. I know and you then, obviously develop on, on a lot of things. Right? Yeah, so for us, I do come from a broadcast background, and maybe that's why also this idea of being a modern broadcast network was a somewhat easy transition in terms of figuring out what our place could be. But it, meant, it means and meant a lot of things for us. And one of the big things for us is making sure that we remain a creator-focused service. We use data a lot. We are informed by data of course. When I talked about leverage coming back, that was about looking at the performance of the show. But at the end of the day, hits are made by creators with singular vision, and you're not going to ever be able to predict what an audience wants to watch in that exact way. And so for us, it's always about just leaning into vision, passion, storytelling, et cetera. That's, and that is a broadcast model in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, the other thing for us, we have a development report that's 
pretty robust. I mean, I think when, you know, I actually don't know how people think about sort of what would streaming development look like relative to broadcast development. Our development report is pretty robust. It's, I would argue, in line with what I was doing on the broadcast side. But the difference is that we don't, like we don't get rid of projects every season. So if we buy a project from anyone, it's because we want to make that show. It's not filling a sort of, oh, let's, we want to make that show. And so we will stick with it and try to develop it for as long as the two of us together can handle doing that. So there's a moment where everyone just says, all right, enough, let's walk away. But we want to make the show. And so that's a, that's a very big part of our process. We are not as pilot heavy as broadcast networks have been traditionally, although you know broadcast networks are also moving away from pilots as well. So we really are about developing multiple scripts and then turning multiple scripts into series. So mm-hmm. those, are, there are, those are a few highlights. There are many others, but those are a few highlights. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a bit about the Neighbours deal, which was announced about two weeks ago. I think yeah. at first it was like, whoa, what, what, is, what is going on here? And then I think the more I sat with it, the more I was like, okay, this actually makes a lot of, quite a lot of sense. Um, like Hollyoaks in the UK is on an on-demand platform, yeah. and Days of Our Lives in the US is on Peacock. Um, wh- yes, when, when, you, when you saw an opportunity to, um, to become involved in Neighbours or in the in rescuing Neighbours, um, yeah, to talk us through how that happened and why it happened. Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, our content lead, leader in the UK, Shahina O'Mahony, who is here today, actually. Um, so she, I hopefully pe- I hope people know her. Great. Um, so this is sort of down to the, the conversation we were having earlier about making sure that we're obsessing over our territories and not just sort of programming in a broad way without understanding what people want in each individual territory. And so Shahina was very, she was sad, I'll say that. So knowing that Neighbors was ending, she was sad. Um, But as someone who's very close, um, was just clear on what this opportunity was and what it meant to audiences here in particular. And I think for me and for the team, that's what we need. You know, we need people who understand their customer base and are willing to take, go out on a limb and take risks. And so to going down the road of, of, of continuing that show, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. I think also this idea of moving a show from one service to another, moving a show from linear to streaming, I think certainly there are questions that I always want to assuage everyone's concerns. The show will remain the show that fans have loved. And if anything, it's sort of how do we make sure it's the show you've loved and maybe make it, you know, if we can make it better, great, but we're not going to make it worse. <laughs> so I just want to make sure that everyone, you know, everyone knows that. And so, but, but the process was what I think you would expect, which was figuring out with Fremantle, with the producers, with the cast, if we could, you know, was everyone excited to keep going? You know, what are the concerns about moving to streaming? And then after... During negotiation period, we were excited to surprise everyone. It, set, it felt like there was such shock. I think because people assumed if it was going to be saved, if people, you know, then you would have known about it right when the show ended. And so mm-hmm. it was nice. You don't have a lot of those moments where people are genuinely surprised yeah. if something happens. Mm-hmm. Do you think soaps and AVOD are uh, a natural fit? I think anything that people love to watch is a natural fit for AVOD. And I think soaps. Um, Similar to maybe even a Judy Justice, for example, what soaps allow for is constant engagement with a service. And so from that standpoint, I do absolutely think they're a natural fit. I also think when you take a show like Neighbors, but really any show, 
We have the ability to put up thousands of episodes now. And so for those who've never watched the show, they can join and they can start wherever they'd like and choose to catch up or not. We also have the ability, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about right now is the fast linear space. And so we're going to build a number of fast channels just for neighbors. And so if you want to watch it by season, if you want, you know, we're going to curate by favorite episodes. So you can just do a lot of that stuff. So the ability to play inside of streaming is the other thing I love. And so I do think even though it wasn't originally built for streaming, I actually think it's a perfect fit and we'll be making a lot of shows that fit within that, within that model and that framework. Yeah. Um, we'll move on to fast now because okay. I know you also see fast or oversee um, fast operations um, as well. Yeah. How does the fast interact with the AVOD, the AVOD side as well? And, and how do you think about the commissioning, or not the commissioning strategy, but the programming strategy on the fast side? Sure. So for me and for the, you know, the way that we built and developed Freevee was that our original content interacted with our licensed content, interacted with our fast content. It was just always meant to be that way. And so we'll have something like Time Wasters, which by the way is also a UK original, but you'll have a show like Time Wasters next to Mad Men, next to Hollywood Housewives with Jeff Lewis. And so, and that's very intentional because unlike a broadcaster where you have to have things lead in one to the next, we can just have everything there and the goal is to have enough content around it. And Fast is the same way. So what I'm excited about with Fast is that we can, um, let's use an example, I'll use an unscripted example. So as we're really developing our unscripted strategy across uh, Freevee and Prime Video, we're excited to launch then standalone unscripted channels so that people can start to get really excited around either specific categories inside of unscripted or just unscripted in general that I've, my team has heard me say a lot that warm up the service for then the original that's going to come on the unscripted side. And so I'm really excited to, in particular, program 1P and Exclusive Fast in that way as a lean in to other content we're doing or just as a way for people to lean back and relax. So if you just want to watch a thing, if you just have one show you want to watch all the time, if you just want to watch a lot of Bosch, we have that for you. And you can just press play and it'll just run. And so that's the other thing that I think is really exciting about Fast. Mm -hmm. um, and just circling back to the, uh, the originals uh, freebie side, um, there's a series called High School. Yeah. Um, you know, to your question about what our strategy is, as much as we are very focused on making sure that we're licensing and commissioning series that are so in the UK, whether it's Neighbors or Alex Ryder, Time Wasters, et cetera, we also want to make shows that even if they are, you know, if they're written by, filmed in the US, have legs, and we go in knowing that this is a show that we think is also going to really speak to a UK audience. And so high school has been a really great example of that. It's um, adapted by Clea Duvall based on Tegan and Sarah Quinn's New York Times bestselling memoir. And it's just done so incredibly well for this audience. It's uh, for the UK audience and for the US audience. It's just an honest, nostalgic look at what it was to be a teenager in the 90s. The soundtrack is incredible. Anything else you want to add on that before before we move on? No, oh. no, except watch it. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, Lauren, you'd mentioned uh, data, and one, one of the questions is, um, what specifically are some of the key metrics um, defining the success of content for you um, when you're looking at the data? Yeah, you know, so it's a little bit different between the two services. Prime Video is a subscription service, um, a benefit of Prime, but a subscription service. Um, versus freebie. So 
But there are some things that are consistent. I mean, of course, we want a lot of eyeballs, right? So you want a lot of people to watch. Um, you want, I want, and we all want a, a wide variety of the audience. So we aren't just programming to one specific customer, we're programming to everyone. And so it's important that demographically we're representing everyone and that's across all sorts of things, rate, region, age, ethnicity, gender, you wanna make sure that it's as broad as possible. But in, then in terms of um, uh, sort of show, show demographics or, or specifics I should say, Certainly we want people to watch shows until the end. <laughs> you know, like completion rate is a great thing. We don't want you to just sort of dabble. We would love for people to come in and really love something. And then after they've finished it, they go and watch something else inside of the service. That's gonna be the biggest win for us um, across the board. And, and you know, there are a few others. I mean, I think some are, 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 are perhaps obvious, but that's one that we think about a lot. I also think that, you know, the beauty of being uh, on this side of the house, and so programming for Amazon Studios and being able to program across both services, is that we are able to look at content and say, is this a better fit in front of the paywall or behind the paywall, or does it work in both places? And, and what does that mean? And so when you have a, a title that's in both places, so high school's in both places by way of example, mm -hmm. then success in Canada on Prime Video is gonna be different than success in the US um, on, on Freebie. Okay. Um, someone has asked here, um, what type of budget levels do you have for scripted original commissions? Fantastic ones. Now we have, um, we have the sort of budgets that make sure the shows are great. We don't, and I'm sure everyone knows this. I mean, we don't talk about specific budgets because it's show by show. It's, you know, it's category by category. It's about what is going to make the best possible product. That's, that's what we look at. Um, and, and, but the thing is, I will say, when we first launched, it was very much about having a conversation that this is not a downgraded experience at all. The other thing I would like to remind people of is that because streaming really was so focused on uh, SVOD for so long, that people, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I believe in streaming there was a bit of a stigma to get over around ad-supported and what it meant to have great content on the ad-supported side, but that was always so confusing to me because until just a few years ago, everyone's favorite show was an ad-supported show, for the most part. I mean, obviously there are many great shows that were being made in cable, et cetera, but I was a huge fan of Mad Men. That was an ad-supported show. Breaking Bad was an ad-supported show. Everything that was made for FX was an ad-supported ad show. And then historically, all the great comedies that we all have, have loved over the years. And so I think part of it has been also about making sure that people understand that creativity isn't blocked by having ads mm -hmm. and, and our budgets aren't blocked by having, by having ads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I suppose taking off your freebie and, and Amazon hat here when you just think about um, the AVOD market and some of the changes that we've, we've seen this year and basically, yeah, as you basically outlined there, maybe nine months ago, people weren't talking about advertising as something that needed to be part of the streaming ecosystem and now it's like you're a fool if you don't have, uh, uh, if advertising isn't part of your strategy. Um, have you been surprised or not surprised at all by some of the shifts we've seen this year um, kind of in the context of advertising coming back into the streaming space or coming into the streaming space? Not surprised. I think because of the exact, you know, the, the conversation we were just having, advertising, advertising is a, has been a part of television from the very beginning. And I think we have to just, and we were having this conversation last night and it was fun to talk about, but 
we're making television. I think somehow we've disconnected. So it's like streaming and television. I, we're making television, and advertising has always been a part of television, so I don't think that it's a surprise to see it now come in on the streaming side. But again, I think it's about, and we talk about this a lot, wanting to make sure people are thrilled at what the high, the quality of what we're making for free on uh, on the AVOD side. But no, not not really surprised. Yeah, um, Freebie is available in the US, um, UK, and Germany. Yeah. Um, is there any chance for to co-produce? Like so, Freeview would take those territories, and then there would be another another partner um, in, and it wouldn't be worldwide necessarily, but uh, maybe a co-production with it with another territory. Is is there that kind of flexibility built into the model? One hundred percent. I mean, I would argue it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. Not every show has a different model, but it's close. <laughs> I mean, if we've got however many shows that we've uh, greenlit. There's something different about every single show in terms of the deal that we've made. I would also say that we are, we do a lot of first run license deals. And so that's the other thing that's really exciting because it allows us to extend the amount of content we have available. So we might have something in just a few territories, to your point, and then people are able to sell it elsewhere. Leverage Redemption, by way of example, is a title that we have in the US and the UK, et cetera. But, but Dean Devil and Electric Entertainment can sell the title in, in other places. So we are open to every model. For us, it is just about how do we get really great content to customers, mm -hmm. period. Um, are there plans for Freebie to expand beyond those three core territories? Or? Always plans. <laughs> and any, any, I'm assuming not, but anything you're able Always to tell us plans, at this time? Always plans, no breaking news. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as we kind of start to come to the end of our time, um, you, you've talked about how you essentially you think about audiences in, in buckets. Um, what are the kind of, for the producers in the room who, yeah. who want to know what specifically, sh not should I be bringing to you, but what kind of things are you looking to have brought to you? Um, what is the, the message you would give, give to them and which kind of genres um, would you like to maybe double down on? Sure, so you know, it's obviously a little bit different on SVOD versus AVOD side, but we, we always want big tent programming. That's you know, a great big, um, piece of IP or format, by the way, scripted and unscripted, because that's one thing that I think um, has maybe been a little bit underserved on the streaming side on the unscripted space is, is, is a, a, like the IP side of it. Um, you know, part of my new remit is also really focused on the YA customer as well as faith and family. That's a space that we're really excited to go into, re recognizing that the faith audience looks different, let's say, in the UK than in the US, than in Brazil. Than, so, um, but that's an area that we're really excited to go into. But really, it's everything. I mean, that's, it's, it's a tricky thing to say, but when you say you're a modern broadcast network, broadcast has always been about a little bit of everything for everyone. And I think our model, marrying originals with license and fast allows us to do it in a great way. So if it's fantastic, we want to hear about it. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that yours is not a uh, kind of a US-centric commissioning yeah. model. And I think, you know, picking, rescuing neighbors kind of you know, yeah. very clearly illustrates that. But um, it, it really is kind of, you know, European um, and, and um, UK and international uh, program, programming and commissioning remit. 100%. I mean, I think that's the beauty of us being based at Amazon Studios. So we program from Amazon Studios for all of our services. And so in that way, we are naturally and inherently global. And we will always program like that. So yeah, you're absolutely right. 
Um, okay, we have already run out of time, which is uh, okay. kind of remarkable. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to chat with us, guys. You're man the person long. Kate Phillips was appointed BBC Director of Unscripted in May this year, responsible for commissioning strategy across entertainment, documentaries, specialist factual, daytime and more. She was acting BBC One controller during the pandemic and before that was controller of entertainment, ordering original shows across BBC television and the iPlayer, including titles like Strictly Come Dancing, RuPaul's Drag Race UK, The Apprentice, Top Gear, The Graham Norton Show and Michael McIntyre's The Wheel. Phillips spoke to Clive Whittingham at C21's Content London recently about new competition reality show The Traitors, plus the revival of classic formats Gladiators and Survivor, and her broader editorial strategy and programming priorities heading into 2023. Kate, new role this year, director of Unscripted at the BBC. It's taken you from being in control of 500 hours of television to about 3,000. Can you tell us why the BBC has done that? what it entails and what it means for the producers? Um, it was done because the BBC is a massive broadcaster, as you all know, and I think one of the things the BBC is getting better and better at is linking up more internally and speaking to each other. And in Unscripted, you've got documentary, specialist factual, factual entertainment, daytime, events, entertainment, and everyone's working incredibly hard, but actually having myself overseeing all of them really helps because I brought all the heads together. So I do oversee 3,000 hours roughly of content, but I have fantastic heads. I have Jack Bootle, Claire Sillery, Catherine Catton, Susie Klein, Kalpner Patel-Knight, you know, Rob Unsworth has just taken over at daytime. So this, this morning I had the heads meeting and they all come together and we all share information. So we all know what everyone else is doing. The other advantage is the strategy. So the BBC is very much following a digital-first strategy going forward. You know, we've seen iPlayer growing each year, and linear is challenging, but linear is still incredibly important to the BBC. But going forward, we want to commission programmes that are uh, focused on iPlayer primarily and linear. So I've developed a strategy with the heads where we look at each program pitch to us and we think what would that do for iPlayer what would that do for linear or is it a sort of big reputational piece and it, it just gives us a lot of clarity I think and, and simplicity in how we work and and the more you know when I took on the role I was a bit gosh that, that that's quite a role to do okay but the more I do it the more it makes sense. And I, I hope that the heads and their commissioning teams feel the same way. And hopefully, for all of you, the indies, it will simplify the process as well. Uh, are you going to watch all 3,000 hours? <laughs> I know, it's always hard. I do watch a lot of TV. I just saw an amazing um, uh, cut of a new factual piece, Parole Board, that Raw have made us, which is just fantastic access to the parole boards across the UK that I think only someone like the BBC would be trusted to do properly and Raw TV have made it brilliantly. So I tend to, I watch certainly first episodes of new series, but I have a great exec support and, you know, very talented commissioners. So I, I, I try and see as much as I can, but obviously I can't watch every single episode. 
There's been some, some eye-catching and some headline-grabbing uh, commissions already, Survivor and, and Gladiators, yeah. things like that. The Traitors, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Traitors? So The Traitors um, came in when I was still director of entertainment, and it's a Dutch format. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. I think it, it won Rose Door last night, which was great. And it, I found it really intriguing, that idea of a sort of game show which looks at human psychology and literally who can you trust and you know who throws who under the bus and who stabs who in the back and I thought it's, it's kind of wink murder meets wolf meets all these sort of games that we all love and Studio Lambert um, had the rights to make it in the UK and US so what we managed to do was sort of combine with NBC. So I um, wanted to spend the money out of London because 54% of all our content is made out of London now. So I really wanted to film it in Scotland. So Studio Lambert have opened up a big office in Scotland and NBC were quite keen to film it in a castle as well. So NBC filmed their version in this Scottish castle. And then uh, we came and filmed our version afterwards, which meant we could share a lot of the costs and made sense. And it's, it's um, I think one thing, when you're looking at BBC sort of fact tent and reality shows, you know, we, we're held to a, to a higher account than any other broadcaster. So like when we do dating shows, you know, I think we do some great sort of dating formats and things like Eating With My Ex are great on the BBC, but we are slightly restricted on, on what we can do. I don't think the BBC could do Love Island in quite the same way. But actually, the great thing about Traitors was that it is set up as this game where you've got 20 people. Most of them are faithfuls, but three of them are traitors. And every night, the traitors bump off one of the faithfuls, and the faithfuls have got to try and identify who the traitors are. And with those rules, you can just let rip. And it's, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think Studio Lambert have done a fantastic job with it. Claudia Winkleman is the perfect host, and it, it hooks you in. I'm hoping that, yeah, well, I knew I loved it, because when I was watching it, and normally I give notes, I'd literally just put my pen down and sort of sat back and was just enjoying it. And then at the end of the ep, I'd be, you can't leave me hanging. And I said, well, of course they can, because that's what you do, Kate, you idiot. And, uh, but I was sort of coming at it as a viewer more than a commissioner or producer. So, yeah, I'm excited. I think what's clever about it is... Most reality shows, you know, a cast bonds. So when you look at something like Love Island or I'm a Celebrity, you know, all brilliant shows, but they're sort of in it and they're in this experience and they bond. And the thing about traitors is that they do form really sort of close friendships, but they can never fully trust anyone. So that paranoia is there from the start. And human psychology fascinates me. And it's a real study in herd mentality and who's going to be awful and who's going to be the hero of the hour, all that. Like you say, perhaps not a, a typical BBC no. show, and I wouldn't say Survivor and certainly not Gladiators would be considered BBC shows, so why have you commissioned them? Well, Survivor is in another amazing format and obviously has had huge international success, and um, that's with Natalka and her team at Banerjee, and they came to us full of ideas of how they could make it for us. Likewise, Gladiators, I, I get a lot of oh, you're just taking these formats and shoving them on the BBC. And I would say, yes, they are established formats, but actually one of the creative challenges is how do you sort of make them wonderful for now, if you like, and what do you do creatively to them? So something like Gladiators went through about six months of development with Hungry Bear before we commissioned it. Likewise, when 
um, we took Drag Race for the BBC. You know, the Drag Race at the time, everyone was like, really, Drag Race on the BBC? Which is exactly why I wanted to do it, because of that reaction. But I said to WOW at the time, don't sanitize it, you know, really go for it, because, you know, British drag queens are sort of filthy and ferocious, and we want to see that. And I remember watching the first episode and thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> they really haven't sanitized it. So I think there is a creative challenge in taking established formats and how you sort of uh, creatively renew them for the BBC. And they sit alongside a lot of new formats that we do, like sort of Hit List, you know, and The Wheel, and This Is My House. We, we, we combine the two. It's sort of established formats and new ones as well. As a, uh, a public service broadcaster, should the BBC not be focusing more on new ideas and giving production companies breaks with their paper formats and their new shows rather than playing safe with shows that rebooting shows that you know have, have worked and you know will, it, will attract an audience? Well, I think we do. Like I say, I mean, The Wheel was commissioned from paper. It was literally a piece of A4 with Michael just drew a wheel on it. Likewise, when we did All Together Now, that was totally came in as a piece of paper. And what if you didn't have four judges, but you had 100 judges? So we're constantly talking to indies about new ideas. But the other thing we've got to do as a broadcaster is serve the license fee payer. And the license fee payer wants big, exciting shows. So, you know, we're not a commercial broadcaster. We're owned by the public. So we've always got to sort of balance that back in new ideas. But if a great established idea comes along and we know, we hope that the public will love it and embrace it, then... We, we sort of have a duty to do that as well. And, of course, it's spread a variety of indies across the UK are making these shows. Let me uh, just... I'll put my Daily Mail hat on just, just for two <laughs> seconds and, and say that if the BBC does have budgetary challenges, and obviously last week there was a big announcement around cuts to local radio, just mm. as local radio had had that wonderful moment with Liz Truss where... You know, she got ambushed by people who know their audience and people said that's exactly what the BBC is there for. If they're not able to spend money on things like that, but they are able to spend money on gladiators, is, is that where the money should be being spent? I think, I mean, you know, local radio isn't going anywhere. I mean, we're looking all... I mean, in my department, Unscripted, we've got cuts. Everyone has. So that, that's the reality of the world we're living in now. We've got our licence free frozen for two years. And um, obviously the cost of living in the UK, inflationary costs. So there are cuts across the BBC. It's just how we can be cleverer with the money that we've got. So I certainly can say hand on heart, it's not like money is being taken from radio to fund gladiators. You know, we're, we're trying to give something for everyone. And I think radio and sounds, and now Charlotte Moore oversees television and radio, we're actually incredibly joined up. And I think both areas are really strong for the BBC. You mentioned the, the budgetary challenges and obviously the licence fee is frozen, although, as we said on the prequel, that does at least give you certainty of how much mm -hmm. money you've got to spend. So it's, it's not all bad news compared to, to some other broadcasters. But talk to me a little bit about how you're going to cope with the challenges around how you're going to pay for stuff. And like you say, cost of living and inflation, that all is going to increase the cost of te making television at a time when you've got less to spend. Um, Co-productions and things like that, is that a way around this? Talk about your strategy. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we certainly um, want to keep commissioning great content. And I think there is this digital first strategy. So we are looking very much at iPlayer and we are looking at sort of fewer, bigger, better. I think what you have at the BBC now is that we have amazing sort of low-cost, high-volume shows in daytime. You know, where Repair Shop started, which was actually made 
for a very reasonable price. And so you can grow ideas in daytime at that sort of low cost, high volume. And then you've got your sort of big sort of fact tent, big Saturday night plays. I think the area that's tougher is those that sort of middling area um, where it's harder to break through. There's so much competition now and there's, there's you know, there's, there's so much choice and not just from broadcasters and streamers, but things like gaming as well has become massive for a younger audience. So I think that we, um, we're very much committed to still supporting productions, but we want to make sure that they're properly funded. So that is a concern of mine that I don't want indie sort of almost giving us budgets that are too low because they really want the commission and them finding that it's unmakeable. So you know, we've got a big strategy we're announcing um, in terms of getting more disabled uh, people working in television off screen, and we want to give indies money to, to give them access, to give the disabled members of staff access if they need it. So there is money there to help indies, but we just have to spend it carefully. It's trendy for certain uh, politicians, the, the dearly departed Nadine Dorries, who I'm, I'm not entirely convinced knew who you were or what you did, but was in charge <laughs> of you anyway. Um, used to beat you over the head with why can't the BBC be more like Netflix? Is Netflix a friend or a foe at the moment? Is it competition or is it a co-production partner? I mean, every, yeah, of course, it, of course it's competition, but I think we certainly um, work with Netflix more, and you said before about co-productions. I mean, we're certainly open, I think, to co-producing with streamers. It's just then we have to work out sort of how it works, how long it's exclusively on iPlayer, you know, Netflix taking sort of the rest of the world. So, yes, it's that kind of balance of, of working with streamers. And, and I'd be naive if I said that wasn't going to happen because it will help with funding things. But, um, I mean, Netflix do some amazing shows without a doubt but when you look at the top 10 shows that are being viewed it's it's rare for an SVOD to get in that top 10 it's normally the sort of big broad you know the main channels in the UK that are doing that and I remember I think when Netflix first released their data last October one of the first times we saw it and Squid Game had been out for a month and everyone was talking about Squid Game and I love Squid Game it's amazing and if you haven't seen Wreck on BBC3 that's amazing as well just plugging that's a great drama but um you know, Squid Game just came in at number 10, but, but significantly above it was Country File and Blankety Blank. So don't ignore, you know, there's still these sort of big, much-loved brands that are doing really good business in the UK. With the, the co-production strategy, the advantage of Unscripted in the past has always been that it's high-volume, low-cost as opposed to drama. Yeah. Is that, are those days over now? Is it... We've got a session here this week called The Rise of the Documentary Showrunner, where it feels like those drama models are coming into factual. Can the BBC afford to fully commission stuff in the way that it did before, or is it increasingly all going to be co-production? I think there will be more co-productions, definitely, and we see it in Specialist Factual and Jack Bootle's area, you know, with the Natural History Unit. They, they've been co-funded for many years. I think Unscripted is still significantly cheaper than drama, from what I can see, and like I say, I think I do have a big shout out to Daytime because I think they produce some really good quality shows and the indies that supply them are, are really clever at sort of when you, it, it's, it's about how you commission. So if you commission 15 half hours, you know, at a relatively low cost, but you, you can sort of recall them in a set time. You know, when we do quizzes for Daytime, we pull three or four apps a day, which brings your sort of cost per program down. So 
I think in documentaries that has got definitely more competitive and the sort of the box sets, which we are very keen to get more of for iPlayer. We're very aware that the sort of SVODs are sort of paying big money for those. But I also think there's something about, I think the BBC gives really good profile to some of these. I mean, you know, when Mo Farah had that amazing story. He trusted the BBC to tell that story. He didn't go to an SVOD with that story. And I think, you know, I would say this because I work for the BBC, but I think the BBC is still a very trusted broadcaster. And I think if you want eyeballs on your show and, you know, you want prominence, I think the BBC is still the place to come. I'm impartiality in uh, news coverage and documentary factual has been a big push for Tim Davies, Director yeah. General. How does that manifest itself in the documentaries you're commissioning at the moment? What should producers bear in mind around impartiality? I think with impartiality, you know, for the viewer, you know that you're getting a really good documentary that is telling the proper story. I mean, the BBC, it's, we call it due impartiality, so of course we're not impartial when it comes to racism or homophobia or violence against, against women. But when we're telling a factual story, you know, and if there's two sides to that story, we will always reflect both sides fairly. And I think we credit our viewers with the intelligence to sort of watch the documentary, hear the arguments for both sides or the different views and make up their own minds. So I, I think impartiality is the, is the lifeblood of the BBC. And I think Tim's spot on for sort of making sure that we all have it front of mind. And I know that we've done a lot of sort of, um, we've helped indie sort of understand what we mean by impartiality. And I, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with on-screen and off-screen talent about it. And it, to me, it makes perfect sense. You know, there are, we are wholly owned by the public and we have a duty to be impartial as a result. Does it mean that if somebody comes on the BBC on question time and says, today's Tuesday, you've got to find someone that comes on and says, no, it's not, it's Wednesday? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, so certainly on question time, we like to have, I mean, obviously it's not my area, that's under news, but I certainly we want to have different voices. I do look after things like, have I got news for you? And you know, if have I got news for you sometimes? I mean, satire always holds the government to account and the government has been conservative for a long time now, but we, we across a have I got news for you series, we will always make sure that, you know, if we have someone from one political party, then another week we'll have someone from another one. So across a series, we will make sure that that balance is there, definitely. And we, we, give, we give all parties an equal kicking <laughs> when it comes to satire on the BBC, I like to think. One, one more on impartiality, if you'll indulge me. Um, you'll be aware that Emily Maitlis gave a, a fairly forthright McTaggart lecture at Edinburgh where she said that perhaps the BBC had been guilty of engaging in both, both siderism, which is a horribly clunky, a clunky term. There was also the BBC Director of Editorial Policy, David Jordan. I think he probably regrets saying this in the way he did, but he said, it's critical we represent all points of view. Flat earthers won't get as much space as people who believe the earth is round, but very occasionally it might be appropriate to interview a flat earther. And I think a lot of people sort of gasped at that. How do you avoid, how do you tread the line between impartiality and the horrible clunky term of both siderism? You, you credit your audience with intelligence, I would say. I think, I think it's, it's quite interesting to see both points of view, but, you know, if you've got a flat earther and a round earther, I would think that most of our audience would get that the earth is round. So, I, you know, I'm, I, just, I, I, don't, I don't agree with what Emily Maitlis said, and um, I understand where David Jordan's coming from on that. We have had questions from the audience, so uh, let's rattle through a few of these while we've got the time. 
Uh, how reliant on producers raising funding are the big noisy formats that are commissioned at the BBC? No, no I mean, not, that's not certainly um, that we would always be about the idea first, and then the first thing we would do is try and fund it ourselves. If we couldn't fully fund it ourselves, but we wanted to do it, we might talk to the producer about if, they, if there was any distribution money on the table, but we, we wouldn't expect them to come with that at the beginning. It's very much a conversation with us about, we love your idea, we're going to do everything we can to help you get this on screen, what else can we do? And then we may look at other partners, but we wouldn't expect the producer to come with all that lined up, absolutely not. Another one from the audience, BBC Pitch requires production companies to have previously produced for the BBC. How do you suggest... Uh, unestablished production companies get their first commission? Um, it's not... That we, on BBC Pitch, we have, we have a huge range of indies on there, and we also have the Small Indie Fund, which we're just doing our next round of funding at the moment, and we're really keen to work with, work with smaller indies. So, um, absolutely, if someone's having a struggle getting on BBC Pitch, they should sort of come to me or come to someone else on the commissioning teams, and we can look at your indie. We certainly have lots of people on BBC Pitch who haven't made for the BBC before and are in development now. But I think, yeah, I mean, I, I've said this before, and I, you know, I'm very honest with you all. You know, if I'm, I'm responsible for spending licence fee payers' money, so if I'm looking at a big Saturday night idea that may cost in excess of five million pounds of licence fee payers' money, I'm not going to give it to an indie that hasn't made a show like that before because so much of a show is about the execution. But what we have done in the past is either help that indie crew up with people who can make those type of shows or we've sort of married them with other companies. So, you know, Eating With My Ex, you know, was a small indie coming together with Thames. So we did that. We did it with Tonight With Target. So I, I really want to help indies grow but I've got to balance that with making sure that we can get the best show delivered for the BBC. Digital first commissioning, does that mean that slots are now dead, someone from the audience says, or to put it a different way, should we now be pitching bingeable iPlayer formats rather than daytime or peak scheduled shows? No, I mean, I, it's, it's really interesting, this balance, and this is what I'm trying to get. I think that linear is still very important to the BBC. I mean, I think SVODs, would, in a way, it's, it's our shop window for iPlayer. That's, that's the difference now. It used to be that we were commissioned for linear and then iPlayer would be the catch-up service. It, a couple of years ago, we closed the channel controller roles because now iPlayer is as important as linear, so they are both considered side-by-side. Side. We do want to grow iPlayer, so occasionally we would still look at a show that we know would probably only work on linear because it's reputational or it's doing something else for us, but the majority of shows do need to work for both. But, you know, some of our biggest brands, like going back to Country File or Antiques Roadshow, you know, they're getting big numbers on linear. I mean, the, 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 the perfect show is the one that ticks all three. So if you can find a show that does linear, iPlayer, and reputational, that's amazing. And, you know, this year we had a new format, Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams from South Shore, and I think it absolutely did that. It worked on linear, it worked on iPlayer, and it was a really amazing thing for the BBC to do, and Freddie put his heart and soul into it. You know, Frozen Planet 2, we can see that does all three. So I'm not saying your idea has to do all three, but um, ideally it would tick two of those three boxes, you know, iPlayer, linear, reputational. Other advice for people coming to pitch you, if I'm coming to pitch you tomorrow, what are the do's and don'ts? What are the common mistakes that people make? I think, I mean, I, 
it's interesting because obviously I, you know, I used to run my own independent production company, so I spent years of hustling and pitching, and I was always interested when I went to different broadcasters and, and how they like to hear ideas. So I'm not sure. I've, I've, I know that sometimes at some of the SWODs, they like the idea to be fully formed and all ready to go. For me and most of the teams I work with, and I have to say now that I don't directly commission anymore, so m m the heads that I mentioned earlier, they are the commissioners. I'm just overseeing all the strategy and sort of helping them as much as I can to get the best ideas away. But I would say that for me, and when I'm talking to heads and hearing what they like, it's a conversation. So I think it's, it's really exciting when you come with an idea and you've had to think about it and you've thought about how it might work. But, it, but it's a conversation more than a sort of whistles and bells pitch. You know, a, a sizzle sometimes really nice to sort of bring it to life and that can just be archive put together or just setting a tone. But... I wouldn't expect you to come with it all sort of ready to go because we kind of go on a journey together with these developments and we hold hands and jump, jump in and, and see if it works or not. But it's very much we're standing by you on this and sort of developing it with you. Every time I've got a buyer in front of me, I always ask what, uh, what you want that you don't have. But across 3,000 hours, I suppose that's, that, that's going to be an odd question. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I mean, I'm really proud of what we got at the moment. I think there's some great shows at the BBC and I think we can see in the autumn and, you know, Saturday nights and Sunday nights going great guns and we've got amazing shows sort of midweek. Obviously, we've got Traitors and then we've got The Apprentice back. We've got our quizzes on BBC Two. We've got some really good sort of um, uh, big arts pieces and sort of factual pieces coming. I think what I would say to you going forward is a bit like when you saw with The Traitors or don't self-censor. Don't, when you're thinking of an idea, think, oh, well, the BBC would never do that because you'd be surprised what we would do. And I think we do need noisier, sort of bigger shows going forward that are going to break through. That, that's for us. We, we often, I often see something that's gone to... I'm thinking, why didn't you bring that to us? And they said, well, we, we think you do it. And I said, look, this is the girl that bought a bag of chips to the air. So, you know, uh, we, we do do unexpected things. What is the show on another network that you wish you had? Oh, I watch so much television. So, I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of Gogglebox. I think Gogglebox is just a, a glorious show and sort of is effortlessly funny and sort of, you know, moments. And actually, when people are pitching to me, I always say to them, when I'm talking to that, you know, where the heads are sort of talking about ideas, and I always said in the past when I was doing entertainment, I said, what are the Gogglebox moments? So if you're bringing an idea to us, I really want an idea where there would be at least sort of half a dozen moments in that show that would make it onto a goggle box that would get a really strong reaction. That, for me, is like, wow, you know, either people are gasping or laughing or crying or sort of texting their friends. So, um, yeah, I think, I think Gogglebox is a great show. And I have really enjoyed I'm a Celebrity. I did get sucked into it, like everyone else. And, um, you know, there, there, there are some great shows on other channels. But the other thing I would say is that, yes, I'm competitive with other channels, but also I'm willing new shows to succeed on other channels because we're all pitching up, you know. Um, the, the heads sort of discuss ideas with me, but often when we don't have money, I've got to go higher up and see if we can get the money. So when I see new shows working elsewhere, that's great because, I'm, you know, it, 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 it gives us confidence to try new shows as well. And so it, it's all good, you know. I mean, we, I know so many people running indies. I, I speak to Katie Rawcliffe at ITV. I speak to Phil Harris at Channel 4. You know, we all, we all talk and we all know that, you know, the, these are exciting times, but they're challenging times and we're all sort of looking for the big hit and we're actually kind of hoping that other channels get big hits as well because that will help us get bigger hits. 
Kate Phillips speaking with Clive Whittingham at C21's Content London. That's all from us for this episode and for this year. There's still a great selection of interviews playing out on our C21 FM internet radio station over the festive season. And from all of us at C21, we wish you a very happy one. Thank you for all your support in 2022 and wish you a happy new year too, when the podcast will be back. Until then, my name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.